It's Tuesday, April 2nd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool 1, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Chief Investment Officer at the Motley Fool, Andy Cross. Good to see you guys. Hello. Hi, guys. Chief Investment Officer and proud graduate of the University of Michigan. <laughs> yes. Ooh, Andy Cross, right. walking tall this week because his Wolverines are in the Final Four. Yeah, I will be in San Francisco for the uh, for the big game to watch it with my brother. So it should be fun. Hopefully the big blue comes out. With a win. Looking forward to it. Should yeah. be a good game. Uh, this is an all edible episode of Market Foolery. We're going to talk corn. We're going to talk spices. It's National Peanut Butter and Jelly Day. So, of course, we're going to talk about that. But we will start with Apple. Two weeks ago, China's Central Television accused Apple of giving customers second-rate repair service on iPhones and iPads. There was additional criticism in the Chinese media. And CEO Tim Cook posted an apology on Apple's Chinese-language website, uh, acknowledging the feedback and criticism the company had received. Uh, and I'm quoting here from Cook's letter. He writes, We recognize that some people may have viewed our lack of communication as arrogant or as a sign that we didn't care about or value their feedback. We sincerely apologize to our customers for any concern or confusion we may have caused. Uh, Jason, maybe I shouldn't be, but I was surprised... <coughs> At the amount of backlash that Cook and Apple are receiving for this, uh, you have people out there saying Steve Jobs never would have apologized for something like this. Um, and, and this just seems like, whereas a year ago Apple could do no wrong, now it seems like Apple can do no right. And Tim Cook in particular can do no right. I mean, I think that that's a fair observation. I mean, it's, uh, look, I mean, Apple is, is officially stuck in a rut and, and I don't know what exactly they can do to get out of it. I mean, it's, we're, we're really sort of facing that question now. I think it's become a reality. Is Apple still a growth stock or is it becoming more of a, uh, sort of income dividend paying stock? Because, We've reached a point here with the iPhone where the certainly the novelty of, of the device is worn off, and, and we know that the iPhone's not going to rule the world. I mean, there are Android devices, Samsung devices out there that are not only doing well, they really are picking up market share on Apple, and they've actually surpassed uh, iPhone uh, market share here in, in the U.S. over the past three months, which I think is very significant. Uh, so I, I've, I've been a proponent and a backer of Tim Cook. You know, the, the apology thing is just, it's hit or miss. I mean, who knows? I mean, if, if they're really at fault, if there was really a bad customer service experience, if they weren't acknowledging things in China, then maybe they need to come out and admit it and, and go forward. But two apologies in less than a year, I think. So that, that's a problem. I mean, it's definitely something worth, worth looking at. I mean, Tim Cook here is stepping into Bob Lanier size shoes. Yeah. <laughs> right. The, the, the great <laughs> basketball player with just the size. Yeah, the size 22 20 sne- sneakers. Yeah. I mean, the the challenge this gentleman has to step into those shoes of Steve Jobs is enormous. No doubt there's going to be bumps and bruises along the way, not to mention all the challenges that Jason mentioned with the competition that's heating up now with Apple. The fact that he's stepping into a legend's shoes, I wouldn't want to step in Tim Cook's shoes for that. Well, at some point, though, does it become an overreaction? We saw Goldman Sachs come out, and it wasn't really a downgrade, but the, they they removed Apple from their conviction list in terms of stocks and now it's just a buy it's just not yeah, a yeah. Conviction it's, it's buy. just I it's mean, just a regular still buy like a 575 dollar price target i think on the stock which yeah. is but the stock's up today. today yeah yeah but what at some point don't investors step back and say wait a minute wait a minute look at how much cash this company has look at how dominant it is in the u.s they're still they're still making money hand over fist, and maybe it's not the the go-go growth days, but 
come on. And now it's, now it's being treated like it's a bricks and mortar retailer, you know, like it's Radio Shack or something. <laughs> Almost like it's a bond. So, I mean, the tail of the tape for Apple is you have a, you have a massive company with extremely high levels of returns on capital with an enormous amount of cash that they apparently can't invest fast enough with a, with a company now that is facing comp- competitive pressures and their growth rates have slowed enormously, compa- uh, compounded by the fact that you had so much hot money flow into Apple over the last year because if you were an institutional investor, you had to own Apple, especially right. if you were a large cap. You couldn't end your quarter not showing Apple on your uh, portfolio holdings. So you had to own Apple. Now that money's going to flee. That money comes easy come, easy go for the mutual fund and for a lot of the institutional money that plowed in Apple. They see those growth rates slowing. They see the competitive pressures heating up. They see Tim Cook stumbling a little bit. They're going to jump out of that stock, which is interesting from a long-term investor perspective because Apple's core business still is relatively strong. Yeah, I think Andy's keyed on something very important there is that this money is flowing out. All of this institutional money is flowing out of Apple right now, and all that selling can't happen in just one day. I mean, it was essentially the most widely held stock of all the funds right. basically in the world. Uh, but in order for these funds to unload that stock, it takes a lot of time, and we're still in the process of, of watching that happen. And when we step back and take a look at it just as individual investors, yeah, it's an overreaction to a degree, I think, because you're still dealing with Apple, which is a phenomenal company with phenomenal products out there that dictate a lot of how we do things in our lives today. So even if there's no real innovation on the, on the you know, the, the foreseeable horizon and the foreseeable future, I think you do have to consider the fact that it's a company that does a lot well, generates a lot of cash, and at today's price, I mean, it reflects something like eight, yeah. maybe eight times earnings X cash, which... That that's just that's very cheap for a company that's done so much to affect so many people well, in the world. I was going to say a year ago in this room, people were talking about how cheap the stock is relative to <laughs> earnings, and that's when it was trading at six hundred dollars a share, seven hundred dollars right. a share, that sort of thing. Now it's down in like what four thirty five yeah. or something like that. I think any investor has to at least be taking a look at the stock today and thinking it's it's a unique buying opportunity. If you're going to hold it for a long period of time, I think that today presents a unique a buying opportunity. Here's a topic we don't normally talk about, and that is the price of corn. Uh, the price of corn fell by more than 12.5% over a two-day period. This is the largest two-day drop ever. And again, Andy, we don't really talk about commodities because we're not really commodities investors. And yet, as stock investors, I saw that headline this morning and couldn't help think of the ripple effect because we have talked in the past about the price of corn and the, the price of commodities and the ripple yeah. effect for restaurant stocks, poultry, beef producers, that sort of thing. What do you think? What goes through your mind when you see a story like this? Well, it's interesting, Chris, because um, corn prices are up 50% since 2008. So it's not like we're seeing the collapse of the corn right. market or the corn pricing. We've seen a significant drop because um, some studies, uh, government studies came out and said we have more corn planted now than before and the supply is higher. So supply and demand, the price is going to drop. What happened is with the drought prices from last year, which some economists estimate took off as much as one percentage point of GDP because the drought was so severe, it was the worst we've seen in 25, 35 years, that had spiked, helped contribute to the spike of corn prices, which means more planting, which means more crops. The crop planting for corn now is at an all-time high. We're going to do 97 million acres this year. That's an all-time high up from last year. So when you see all these dynamics kind of flow into play, at some point, the price has to give. 
Now, how did that ripple through the economy and through pricing? How does that affect corn prices? How does that affect the the price of our you know corn base or corn pops in the morning for <laughs> for cereal? How does that all work through? It usually takes a few months to work out. What is interesting is we haven't quite seen the enormous food inflation that many were calling for during the drought of last year. So. Farmers are so much more efficient and able to manage what they plant, how they adjust their crops, how they get more yield for more pricing. That it, th- it seems like now that there's more efficiency in the marketplace, that the pricing is much more manageable. These drops get a lot of headline news, but really long term over the over the course of the year, economists are still looking for the price of corn to be about where it was. So I'm not looking at this price of this this drop in corn prices this week as, oh, my God, the world's coming to an end. <laughs> uh, Jason, the price of wheat also dropped to a nine-month low. If you are Panera, if you're Chipotle, is there a, a benefit here, even if it's just a slight one? Well, I mean, there definitely can be, and I think we keyed in a lot of uh, good reasons as to why we are not focused on the commodity game here. I mean, this is the nature of commodities, and unless you can predict the weather or have some other sort of inside skinny there, there's no real competitive advantage. We have no advantages. There's so many things that are based on outside external factors, and so that that's just where uh, we may not pay attention to sort of the pure play commodities game, but it is helpful to know how they affect the companies that we look at. So Panera, uh, Chipotle is one that I think is a really good example where corn comes into play here, and I was looking back at a Chipotle call in October of last year, uh, where they were actually calling for food cost inflation to start rising. Uh, they were referring back to the drought, to wheat corn harvests, and how it was going to affect everything from, uh, you know, prices in beef to prices in, you know, components to their salsa and tortillas. And, uh, you know, those those genuine food cost inflation concerns in that call, I mean, the stock got hammered that yeah. day. I mean, yeah. granted, that was also the time where I think uh, – you know, there was some, there was some slowing comp yeah, store sales. And I think that the Taco Bell sort of competition thing out there was with its Einhorn. Um, yeah. but you know, I mean, I think it's very helpful to know how a company may be exposed. So with Panera, it's going to be more wheat. Uh, Chipotle, it's going to be more corn. Uh, and everything to, to even like, you know, the, the chicken farmers. I mean, sure. that's, that's another one where, you know, they're yeah. going to be fed corn or whatever it may be. And, and, and that's going to affect the price of chicken, which affects the price of beef and which affects the price of pork. So, so it all does flow through. It is helpful to know how it affects your, your investments. As Chris and I were talking about this earlier is, uh, as I mentioned, the farmers being able to shift their corn, their crop so quickly and be able to say, Hey, I'm not going to plant corn, I'm going to plant cotton or soybeans or whatever it may be. So this news that we hear this week, within a month or two months, it could totally reverse. Mm -hmm. So like I said, it's going to get a lot of headline play here. It is interesting, as Jason said, to think about how it impacts many restaurant stocks, Buffalo Wild Wings, for example, which which sells mostly, you know, the wings right. in the store. Corn prices and and rising input prices have a big play on, on what that means for chicken chicken wing prices as well too so it is important for investors to focus on this but i wouldn't be so caught up by one or two days uh movement in the uh, price of corn it seems like and maybe this is is not a great analogy but it seems a little bit like we've talked in the past jason about automakers in the u.s and europe and essentially if you're investing in ford or gm just don't expect anything out of europe just don't you're going to be better off. and it seems like along those same lines if you're looking at chipotle panera yes this is a factor but this this shouldn't be necessarily a a a buy a signal to buy or a signal to sell no it shouldn't at all i mean really it's a component of the overall company and how they make their money but you have to figure that every restaurant and every grocery store is subject to this in some capacity 
Um, and so then you, you have to sort of, you look deeper into the company's supply chain, where they get, how they source. And we know with Chipotle, they're uh, very particular about their sourcing and how they get their food and what kind of food it is. So it could be a little bit more uh, a subject to, to something like this if there was a corn shortage. But, but you know, at the end of the day, you pay attention to management and sort of how they deal with these kinds of things quarter in and quarter out. If they have, uh, you know, sort of backup plans, contingency plans there to deal with sorts of things like this, then that's great. And you can, you can sort of, uh, you know, add that into your, to your sort of competitive evaluation of the company. But, um, if not, then, then you know to look at it the other way. And pricing power too, it does really get you focused on companies that have the ability to raise prices in the face of rising input costs. Absolutely. I mean, Panera and Chipotle are, are two great examples of companies that have taken this sort of new mentality, this generational shift and this sort of uh, this fast casual movement where I look at something like a McDonald's, I just see facing tremendous headwinds going forward because I just don't think people want that food anymore. I mean, the food sucks. Let's face it. It's not good. <laughs> well, but you know, when you, you have you, options out there, it's but, way, that are but, way better. But even if you just step back from the... You know, whatever you think of the food itself and the way that the, those uh, restaurants present themselves and the messages that they that they give out in terms of their advertising, it seems like the fast casual restaurants, Panera and Chipotle, it's a different message than McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, which are much more focused on value. Value, meals. you yeah. know, it's it, you know, you're at, not going there. For here a are twenty things you can buy for a dollar. Yeah, that Chip- sort of thing. Chipotle is food with integrity. Panera is a loaf of bread in every arm. I have no idea what McDonald's or Burger King is, and maybe that's maybe that says something right there. It does remind me a little bit. I I, I couldn't help but think Trading Places and the Dukes trying to corner the orange <laughs> oh, yeah. juice, juice market when I when I saw the news this morning. About I the think corn for prices. for most people of a certain age, that's our first exposure to commodities <laughs> exactly. trading. It was yeah. the movie yeah. Trading yeah. Places. Yeah, it was the Dukes? <laughs> Uh, McCormick and Company's first quarter profits came in slightly higher than expected, uh, which apparently was good enough for Wall Street because shares hit a new all-time high this morning. Uh, Jason, on Investor Beat yesterday, you said this was your stock to watch. What'd you make of the quarter? I loved it. I mean, you know, listen, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say this one's got me, uh, you know, by the heart. I went and visited their their factory up here in Hunt Valley a couple of years back with Joe Mager. Just a phenomenal operation, and I'm telling you right now, at some point or another, this has got to be one of of Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway's targets for their elephant gun. It just seems like a business that is right up their alley. Just a company that's fiscally fit. They are they they touch literally everybody in the world. Whether you have their spices in your pantry at home, uh, they they have a a a commercial division that supplies spices and and things like that to restaurants from from General Mills food company to to restaurants like Yum Brands. I mean, it's just a phenomenal company, and uh, you know, I mean, it's not going to be something that doubles overnight. No question there, but but they really they do a great job of running the business and. And uh, I just, you know, I just don't see anything really holding them back. It's just going to be a nice slow grower, makes a lot of cash, pays a dividend, good stuff. It's a trusted brand for me. Yeah. I've got a little bottle of McCormick's crushed red pepper over at my desk for, you know, pizza day because I like crushed red pepper on my pizza. And yet, when I was looking at the basics of this company this morning, getting ready for this, the thing that stunned me was this is a Basically a $10 billion company. $10 million. That, I don't know why, but that just struck me as 
so much bigger than I would have imagined. A well, ten so, billion dollar spice. I, I, well, I will say so. When we were at their factory, I mean, they have. I mean, it is not. Just, it's not just a spice factory. I mean, they have chemistry labs in there where they are developing new flavors, fragrances, spices. Um, I mean, all sorts of things. They they didn't lead us. They they didn't tell us in so many words, but they led us to believe they were. You know, and they play an integral part in, in KFC's. You know, thirteen spices or whatever that the is. The secret recipe. I, you know, hey, you didn't hear it from me, but all I'm saying. <laughs> This this is much more than just a spice factory. There is there is chemistry behind this, and they are doing a lot of research day in and day out. I was I was blown away at this facility, and I, and I know that Joe would say the same thing. And uh, yeah, ten billion dollars to me, the, it's just going to keep on doing that because you know the, their consumer division, which is what grew this quarter, versus the commercial division, which sort of was flat, shrunk a little bit. But they they said that you know part of the the commercial division uh, headwinds they faced were just uh, people not eating out as much. Yeah. Uh, but but the nice thing is that they build these long-term relationships with these restaurants and continue that you know the switching costs there they just become bigger and bigger as time goes on and so that they have a, a great level of trust with these restaurants these big companies and uh, and I just look for it to continue and they are really seems to be just warming up overseas in emerging yeah. markets you know uh, China was up 20 percent for them Asia Pacific was up 15 percent for them that's a big growth driver yeah. for them um, a lot of Latin American countries love that spicy food so they love to get the um, a lot of the um, spices in there that someone like McCormick would manufacture. But Jason hit the uh, nail on the head with McCormick and its consistency. Um, this business just continues. It's a, it's, a, it's a strong branded business. It continues to hum out and produce steady earnings. Not the fastest growing company in the world. We're talking like, you know, GDP plus a percent or two and then right. you get some operating leverage and you have, you know, a seven to 10% operating profit growth business. But I was amazed that even during the financial crisis, the stock right now sells at about 23 times earnings. Would you think, wow, for, for a company of, of a spice company, that seems a rich. Really rich multiple with Apple price at nine times earnings. Right. But McCormick's multiple never got below 14 times during the financial crisis. Yeah. 14 times earnings. Um, so it's just a business with returns on equity of 25%, very consistent. And that's why the multiple always stays a little bit higher. So I think at this price, the multiple, the stock has done very well, all time high, Chris. Um, the, the, the stock may have gotten a little bit ahead of itself, but this is a business that the stock gets pulled back, the yield gets above 2% again, and you can own this thing for life. And as you astutely mentioned yesterday on InvestorBeat, Chris. Barbecue season is just around the corner. It's just around the corner. Yeah. Uh, barbecue season is just around the corner, but today is National Peanut Butter and Jelly Day. I am so hungry. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I couldn't help but think, I, I, I wouldn't even attempt to calculate how many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches I've eaten in my lifetime since it was basically a staple, uh, bringing it to school uh, for lunch every day. Uh, but... It seems like one of those things that people are always trying to improve or or tweak yeah. or something like that. Do you have any sort of a twist that you ever put on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, whether it's changing up the jelly? I suppose the standard is peanut butter and grape jelly. But I, personally, I'm a, I'm a fan of blueberry jam myself, so I, I like to mix it in. And in the summer, every once in a while, just again, to harken back to my childhood, Every once in a while, a fluff or another. Yeah. Just replace yeah, the yeah, jellies yeah, with yeah, marshmallow yeah, fluff. Yeah, fluff. And that's well, just a strong There's go-to. an ongoing debate and, and, and some heated arguments inside the Cross family because I like almond butter. Um, but it's but the supposedly natural, healthier. Well, the natural <laughs> almond butter, so it's not stirred. My wife hates the non stirred <laughs> almond or peanut butter, so she insists that I also buy the pre mixed 
Jif. You know, Skippy, Jif. Jif well, I, well, she likes, she, we both like the Whole Foods brands, okay. peanut okay. butter, so, a uh, peanut butter, almond butter, so, um, but she won't touch mine and I won't touch hers, so it's all like, you know. <laughs> Talking about peanut butter, whoa, folks. peanut butter, almond butter, yes. Exactly. So, just to be clear, um, I, I hope and trust that you are, uh, you, you never want to play your children off against your spouse. But this seems <laughs> sure like one of those yeah. areas where you would. We do. This, yeah, seems, we do. this seems like uh, one where you're just constantly <laughs> yeah. slipping your daughter, just yeah, like, just, here, have yeah, some almond yeah, butter, yeah. and just get her to a Working that Working the apple and the almond butter or the apple and the peanut butter, nice. I, I won't touch the peanut butter. I think the easiest, the no-brainer, I don't. I, I never really try to improve on a good thing. So, I mean, the peanut butter jelly straight is great, but I do like adding fresh fruit to it sometimes. So, like peanut butter jelly, if you have strawberry jelly or something yep. like that, yep. throw some strawberries on top. Yeah. or and it's a, It can just give it a little texture maybe, but I, I don't really know that there's much you can do to improve on. I may be the only one who goes to pot belly and gets a peanut butter and jelly sandwich <laughs> and ask them to slice the banana onto it as well. Ooh, banana? That's I didn't know they did. Wow, you get like real service over you there at Pot Belly. So it I remember growing up, there was this restaurant called GD Ritzy's where you would get a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and they would give you in a little cup on the side the fresh fruit and yeah. the chopped peanuts. So you had the peanut butter jelly on the bread, and then you had your options to whether you want to sprinkle the fruit or the chopped peanuts wow. on there. I mean, it was pretty. it was pretty high cotton. It was good. I think we have a restaurant concept in the making here, although I, I imagine it has to exist someplace. An entire, like, peanut butter jelly, like, restaurant menu where it's all different kinds of peanut butter or almond butter or, you know, whatever you want, plus fluffernutter or... Sure. At worst, it's just another jam. reason for us to take the show on the road. Totally. we got to find this place. Jason Moser, Andy Cross. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As thanks. always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.